My name is M. Jason Graham, and this is the M. Jason Graham Show. Patent Patriarchy, the father of invention. Let's talk about patents. Black's Law Dictionary defines a patent as a legal document which provides protection to the idea of an individual. Usually issued by the patent office of a country, the patent is granted to any firm or individual. Patents constitute one of four classes, machine, manufacture, composition of matter, and process. It is the classification of process where I would like to focus our attention. You see, we have been conditioned to believe that the person associated with an innovation is its material author. However, history has proven that this is not true. I have to admit, one of my favorite observations from Professor Scott Galloway is, quote, Usually, it's the second mouse that gets the cheese, unquote. In other words, the author of an innovation rarely receives the lion's share of its benefits. Today's guest is the self-proclaimed science evangelist, Dr. Anissa Ramirez. Her book, The Alchemy of Us, how humans and matter transform one another, highlights the importance of challenging the bias commonly associated with science practitioners. As usual, I can be reached at show at mjgstorycreation.com. And now, Dr. Anissa Ramirez. Dr. Anissa Ramirez, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity to join you today. So, uh, would you please tell us a, a little about your background? Oh, great. Um, well, I'm a material scientist, and a material scientist is, is someone who studies atoms and what they do and makes new materials. Um, I didn't know about material science when I was very young, but I did want to be a scientist when I grew up. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey and uh, went to school in Providence, uh, got a doctorate at Stanford in material science, uh, was a professor at Yale for a while, and, uh, and now I write for a living. And speaking of that, you have this wonderful book called The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transform One Another. In it, you recount some of the patent struggles of scientists in history. Could you talk a little bit about the Priest and the Eastman Kodak Company? Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorites, actually. Uh, there are a few patent struggles, and for those of you who are interested in IP, you're going to learn more about the story about these IP struggles in the alchemy of us. Uh, but it ends up that uh, long ago, uh, before we had uh, digital cameras, you actually had cameras that stored the image physically. And many of you may remember film, but before then, it was actually stored on glass, glass that had, uh, you know, sensitive, sensitized with chemicals so it could store an image. 
And there was this preacher called uh, Hannibal Goodwin who was curious about making more robust ways of storing images. You see, when he was a when when he was a preacher, he would teach Sunday school and he would show the equivalent of PowerPoint images along with his Sunday school lessons. But the children would would put the glass into um, the projector and they would break the glass. So he wanted to figure out how to make a more robust uh, way of storing images. So he started working on camera film, and it took him ten years, and he eventually figured out how to make a plastic camera film. And he got the patent for it in 1887 for photographic pellicle and the process for making the same. And then he started a, a, a correspondence with George Eastman, who we know from Eastman Kodak, because he wanted to get some of his plastic sensitized so he could test it out for his camera. Well, it ends up that two years later, George Eastman and also one of his employees, Reichenbach, also came out with a patent uh, that was also for camera film. So the patent examiners said, hey, these, these were too close to each other. So they figured out who was the originator of the idea. Ends up that they selected Hannibal Goodwin to be the originator of the idea. And Hannibal, he wasn't, he wasn't really sure what that meant. He thought he had won his patent, but he really didn't. He just won the ability to proceed, but he didn't. So Reichenbach wrote a patent with a smaller scale of scope of work, and he got the patent. And Hannibal got nothing. And so Hannibal wrote another patent and he got bad advice. He was told to add a little bit of camphor to the patent and to his formulation. Well, that opened up a can of worms because now he, his patent looked too close to a very popular material called celluloid. So then Hannibal and Reichenbach ended up being in this very, very long protracted uh, patent battle um, to see who was the originator and who could get the patent. Ends up that uh, Hannibal never got to see—he uh, never got to see the results of his work, but he because he actually passed away. But the decision was made uh, in his favor uh, many, many years later. And I, I, I also wanted to point out from the story: this entire time, Eastman Kodak is making money selling the actual product. Is that correct? Oh, he's making a—he's making a ton of money. Yeah, they have in in his uh, laboratories. They have. Uh, glass that's on a surface and people are pouring this concoction spreading it on and then slicing it and selling that camera film a film and then putting it into uh different types of cameras and and containers and selling so he's making a ton of money and so um and so you know all Hannibal Goodman wanted to do was just have a good life in his you know his, his elderly years um and he knew that Eastman, in fact, he went to go visit Eastman. And in one of his uh, letters he wrote to his wife, he says that there's a Klondike of, of work. And Klondike was a, you know, a, a mine that was generating a lot of gold. So he knew there was a ton of money being crossed up coming out of the Eastman Codex based on his idea. Wow. Now, I understand that you have been through the patent process. Would you tell us about your invention and about that journey? Sure. Uh, well, I was very fortunate. I, I may not have mentioned, but in my career, I, I worked at Bell Laboratories uh, in New Jersey, and this was a fantastic place to do science. And uh, one of the things that we were encouraged to do as scientists was to write patents for our work. Uh, that's, that's how the company uh, measured success, and that's also how it protected itself. Uh, and in fact, there was an incentive. If you, you, know, you got a little bit of money if you wrote a patent. 
And I had a couple of ideas, uh, and, and I have to back up. One of the things that I really enjoyed when I was at Bell Labs was lunchtime. Uh, not that I was hungry, but it was because people who were sitting at the lunch table had different backgrounds. So you had chemists and physicists and, and uh, people who studied optics all kind of sitting at one table and just talking about what's going on, on during their day and, and what's bothering them. What are the problems that they're facing? And oftentimes, that's where great ideas came. And so one of my favorite patterns was there was a gentleman who was working with optical fiber, and he was having a tough time mounting it, that is, gluing it down. There's nothing that glues directly to, um, to glass. Uh, there were some things that he can do to kind of crunch down on it, but, you know, over time, over 20 years where, where you know, it would creep, that it would, that it would lose its position, and that wasn't good for optical fiber. So in that discussion at lunchtime, a few of us said, you know, it would be great to get ordinary solder, so that stuff that you get over at the Radio Shack or the hardware store, and put in it materials that are very, very reactive to oxygen. And uh, if you remember the periodic table, there's two rows at the very bottom of the periodic table. They're called the lanthanides. They're very reactive. So all you need is a little bit of those guys in solder, and you can make it do new things. Well, that's what we did. And uh, we created a solder. We call it universal solder because it bonds to not only what solder used to bond to, which is metals, but it now bonds to oxides. And we designed it specifically for optical fiber, but we found that jewelers like it, uh, people who work with um, more esoteric materials like it because they can really glue down and secure things. So uh, what did that do for my own career? Well, it put a little bit of money in my pocket. That's, that's nice. Uh, but it also was wonderful to have an idea come to fruition and to see that it was useful. Um, later, I, I built a company around um, this, this material. Um, and it, it also just gives you a sense of achievement because you created something and it's viable and um, we, wrote, uh, we wrote several papers about it. So, you know, it's just part of uh, the, the development as a scientist that I thought that it was beneficial to. And you've written a couple of books as well, right? Yeah, so The Alchemy of Us is my third book. And the other books, uh, the first book I wrote is an e-book. It's called Save Our Science. It's based off of my TED Talk, which is about the importance of knowing science, why science education, STEM education is important. Not solely so that you can become a scientist, but, but so that you can be in the conversation about technology, because we know technology is everywhere. Uh, the yeah. second book that I wrote, the second book that I wrote is uh, Newton's Football, which is about the science behind America's, America's game. And what it does is it parallels football to science. It ends up that there's lots of parallels, lots of crazy questions that scientists are thinking about are kind of me they're metaphors that are happening on the gridiron. So chaos theory is taking place on the football field. And the butterfly effect, that is uh, that, you know, a flap of a wing can drastically change something down the road. Well, that happens on the football field. And of course, there's plenty of physics with the collisions. And one of my favorite chapters is uh, why don't woodpeckers get concussions? So that was my uh, second book. And, uh, and now The Alchemy of Us. The Alchemy of Us is very different, a part of my own evolution, because this book explores how technology shaped us. And it looks at eight inventions, simple inventions, simple inventions such as uh, the telegraph, the light bulb, photographic film, and shows not only who were the origins, uh, the originators of these, so you know about the origin stories, 
which are fun. But what I think is most important is to show how these inventions shape society. So we talked about photography, but sim something simple like the light bulb is actually shaping us because it's linked to our health. There are people who um, are, have a, a risk for a range of ailments, and it has to do with when they work. They work at night under artificial light. I didn't know anything about that. So, so that's what the book does. It highlights little-known uh, inventions and also how they have shaped culture and us. So you have moved solidly into science education. And I wanted to add, I know we're going a bit off script, but I wanted to ask you what prompted your move into, I know that you still work as a scientist, you're still, um, I'm sure you're, you're still in that field, but you've also moved into science education. Why do you think that it's important that we have people like you in science education? Oh, that's a great question. And I moved 100% out of the laboratory. Oh, okay. It was, yeah, no, it, it's a good question. Uh, I was in the laboratory for a while. I was at Yale for about 10 years. And I was kind of going through a transition while I was there uh, because I was starting to think about how I can make a bigger impact on the planet. And I was teaching science courses and I loved it. I was one of those, those professors who had great demonstrations and, and the more lethal a demonstration, you know, the more excited students <laughs> got. And I actually, I love doing it too. So it was great. Um, but, you know, I would get about 30 students a semester. That's, on, you know, 60 students a year. I said, you know, I really think that these students are going to do well with or without me. But let me go reach and, and let other people see that science is for them. You know, at Yale, it's a very rarefied group of people. There are a lot of people who need to know science, too. They may not become scientists. I don't think we need to become scientists, but they need to feel like this something is for them. So I decided to embark on this new journey of what I call being a science evangelist. Uh, where I give talks to different audiences, uh, young people, people who are a little bit more established. I write books. I translate science so that it's understandable, which is what I do in The Alchemy of Us. And I think people need to see that scientists don't look like the stereotypical scientists that we think of, that is the, the old white guy with white hair. Um, scientists come in all shapes and sizes. And I, I feel this way because the reason why I became a scientist is because I watched a television show growing up in the early 80s called 321 Contact. And uh, there was a little African-American girl solving problems with her friends. And when I saw her, I saw my reflection. So I knew the power of reflection. And so that's the reason why I thought that this journey of, of you know, departing from science writ large, that is to do it in the laboratory and to communicate it and to bring more people to the conversation was where I could make more impact. Well, I can tell you, your your book really made me aware of, of a number of things and really connected. Uh, I, I see it as uh, it's it's not just like a, a science book or a history book. It's really uh, interdisciplinary in its approach, and I I I love that. I would like Thank you to, so much. Um, is there another scientist or inventor that you think everyone should know? Oh, that's a great question. Now, you know, this is a hard question because you're asking a mama to choose which baby she <laughs> likes the best. And we're not supposed to do that. Um, but I, I have to say that today I'm really vibing with J.J. Uh, Thompson. And J.J. Thompson 
is is little known. He's very famous in the field of physics because he found the electron. And you may say, big deal. Well, the electron is what makes our world move. I mean, it's making this call possible. It's making the lights work. It's, it's, it's fueling the internet. All this is happening because of the electron. Now, J.J. Thompson was, you know, the stereotypical absent-minded professor, and he was also extremely clumsy. And in order for him to discover the electron, he needed to make this sophisticated glass bulb where uh, uh, electricity was shot in through one end, and it could be detected on the other end. And from that, he was able to determine that it was made out of small bits, which he figured out was electrons. But there was no way that he was going to be able to make a glass bulb that was sophisticated because he was just so clumsy. So he had a fantastic uh, uh, assistant. His name was Ebenezer Everett, who created this glass bulb. And together, they were like the brains and the brawn working together to discover this electron. Now, when you read books about J.J. Thompson, he's portrayed as this, you know, fantastic genius. But when I found out that, you know, his wife was running after him because she thought he left his house uh, without pants, and that he wasn't allowed to use a hammer in the house because he was just such a terror. He just seemed more, uh, more affable, more approachable to me. And so, um, so one of the things I'm very proud of is actually showing this part of him in the alchemy of us because, you know, he's, of course he's a genius. Everybody has genius for something, but he's also a human being. And we should make scientists more relatable so that science feels more relatable. And, and that was kind of one of the uh, missions of the alchemy of us. So I guess J.J. Thompson is one of my favorites right now. Wow. Well, where can we find more information about you and, and the work that you're doing? Well, I'm easy to find. Uh, AnisaRamirez.com is my website, and it will indicate uh, where I'm speaking. I'm doing a lot of uh, Zoom lectures right now. Um, I'm easy to find on Twitter. My DMs are usually open. Uh, you know, if you shoot, shoot me an email, if you like, uh, through, through Twitter. Um, you know, I have a presence. I, I've done some videos. I've written for Time and The Atlantic and some other places. So, so my work is, is around. Um, and I'd be happy to interface with people. In fact, because of COVID and because I'm unable to do uh, in-person talks, uh, if people buy the book, I, I tell them, look, send me a DM shoot me your, your address and I'm happy to send you a, a signed book plate. And when COVID is over, I'll stop doing that. But for now, this is just another way to connect with people. So if you pick up a copy of the book and, and you want a signed book plate, please reach out and let me know. I really appreciate your, your engagement and your moving into this space. Uh, what, and I've, I've, heard, I've heard you talk about, uh, in, in other interviews, I've heard you talk about other projects that you're working on. Would, could, yeah. you, could you give us a couple of hints? Sure. Well, uh, I do have another book, large-scale book that I want to work on, but you know, it's, it's not safe to go to libraries and archives right now. So, so right. that book is looking at that 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 book is looking at uh, technologies, old technologies, and how there's sometimes bias in these technologies. But right now, uh, since what I am working on is a couple of children's picture books. And I'm, oh, okay. I'm, highlighting, I'm highlighting a little known inventors. You can think of it as hidden figures, if you will, uh, who make our world possible. So uh, this, call, this call would not happen if it wasn't for Jim West. Jim West was an African-American inventor who created 
the microphone, the modern microphone. Um, not too many people know about him. So I'm working on uh, some, some uh, book about him. Uh, one of the first people that you meet in the Alchemy of Us is Ruth Belville. Ruth Belville had an unusual job. She sold time. This is the 19th century. People needed to know the precise time. She would go to the Royal Observatory with her pocket watch, get the precise time, and then walk around London to different places that needed to know the time. So I'm, I'm highlighting a lot of people who were overlooked in history who are just absolutely fascinating and who made up society. So, uh, so that's what I'm working on right now, children's picture books. Okay, and then for the last question, I'm asking every guest, what are two books that you have found influential that you think that everyone should read? Two books. Again, you're asking your mother to choose. Um, let's see. Well, Einstein's Dreams by Alan Lightman knocked my socks off. Uh, it is, it is a, it's a science book, but it's written so lyrically that you cannot tell. It's just so beautiful. And it's a thought experiment because it explains how Einstein might have thought about time if it were different than how we understood it. Uh, if, if time was broken up so that I'm talking to you, but in the next moment, one of us is on a bus, how would we live our lives if life was disconnected that way? It's, just, it's a wonderful thought experiment. That may not have been the best example, but it's a wonderful book. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it justice. Um, another book that speaks to me right now is uh, Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, which is a which bunch of essays that she's written. I, I love her as an essayist. And she, I mean, her books are incredible, and but her essays are amazing. And they really give me a source of confidence that I, you know, that I don't necessarily always have in the world. So I guess those would be my two selections. Well, Dr. Ramirez, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to thank Dr. Ramirez for sharing her time with us today. Grab a copy of her book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another, also available on audiobook everywhere. I have talked a great deal this season about the importance of protecting your intellectual property. But in the interests of science, I'd like you to do a thought experiment with me. Imagine that, as a part of the pre-holiday dinner festivities, your baby cousins perform an original dance routine to the latest Cardi B Stallion mixtape hit sharing it with their 30 followers on TikTok. After dinner, you hear a collective squeal during the football game. Your cousins show you the TikTok of a popular influencer who has appropriated their routine. The only difference being that the influencer has 200,000 followers. The video has gone viral netting over 500,000 views in four hours. Soon, the influencers offered product endorsements, starting at $10,000 per social media post. And what do your baby cousins get? Not even the courtesy of a thank you, because by the end of the night, TikTok will have moved on. That is the nature of social media. What I'm talking about isn't anything new. 
IP appropriation, cultural or otherwise, has been key to the survival of the human experience ever since Homo sapiens developed the ability to tell stories. It is only in the last 60 years that corporatocracy and cronyism have turned it into a zero-sum game. Imagine the opportunities we could impart to our children and future generations by teaching them how to recognize and protect their intellectual property. Next week, we begin our eight-episode social contracts arc. Brother Desmond Wood returns. He will share his experiences living in a monastic community. Share this episode with an entrepreneur or a business owner. And don't forget to like, favorite, or subscribe. Until next time, take care of each other. The M. Jason Graham Show is written and produced by M. Jason Graham. The theme was composed by Travis D. Artis. This has been the M. Jason Graham Show. I'm M. Jason Graham.